Well, good morning and welcome to Sojourn. So glad to be with you guys this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And just looking forward to jumping into God's Word with you this morning. Just as by way of reminder, there's a little half sheet of paper in your bulletin that's for you to take notes on so that you can continue to process what God uh, speaks to you today as He challenges you, encourages you, and also just so that you can go and interact with one another in community to continue to apply and live out uh, God's Word throughout the rest of the week. If you need a Bible this morning, if you just raise your hand, we'll have a couple of people bring a Bible around to you. Just keep your hand up till they find you so that you can uh, get that and read along with us out of the book of Hebrews this morning. Uh, and if you don't actually own a copy of God's Word, please feel free to take that home with you. Uh, that's our gift to you. We want you to be able to have that all throughout the week uh, to be able to read it, not just today, but uh, Monday through Saturday as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now and ask Him just to bless our time in His Word. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Holy God, we're aware of our need for you this morning. We're aware of our need for the Spirit this morning. Lord, your Word is living and active. You use it in our lives to bring about transformation and change. And so we ask, Lord, that your Spirit would do that today. Just by me preaching and us reading, just by ourselves, left alone to ourselves is not enough. We need you to help us to understand what your word says. We need you to take what your word says from our heads and move it to our hearts and out in our lives. And so Lord, this morning as we open up your word, as we continue to dive into the book of Hebrews, I pray that your spirit would just illuminate for us what you have to say to us today. Help, help your word to jump off the page to us this morning. Lord, that we might live faithful lives, that we might be men and women of faith who live by faith. So Lord, we pray as we have been challenged to pray over the last few weeks that even this morning, right here in this moment, that you would increase our faith. We might hear from you, heed your word, and live it out for the glory of your name. And we pray this in Christ's name this morning. Amen. <clears throat> in uh, 1961... In the height of the Cold War, a monumental dystopian sci-fi novel came out that's had a, a kind of a lasting impact on thought and art and the future. The title of this book, Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein. And the story chronicles a man named Valentine Michael Smith. And, and this guy, Smith, is, uh, is a human being. He was born on a spaceship that was traveling to Mars, and everyone else on his ship died. And so naturally, he was raised by Martians. And so he grows up on Mars, and he learns life as a Martian, but he comes back. The story's about him coming back to Earth in a post-World War III time period. And life on Earth is very different from life on Mars, and so the story is a lot about his adjustment and adaptation and engagement as a human being with other human beings, though he finds himself being so different from them and how he lives and interacts and thinks about the world. And they're intrigued by him as well. It's a fascinating story. It's about power and spirituality and religion, relationships, love, and the future of humanity. Numerous songs have been written that either overtly talk about this book or allude to it, like a line in Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, or U2's 1981 song by the same title, which Bono said was about an interaction he had with a boy across the Berlin Wall. 
But the title of that book, Stranger in a Strange Land, actually comes from the Bible. In the King James Version of the Bible, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 22, this is where Moses, his wife Zipporah, has just given birth to a son, and this is what it says. And she bore him a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. The ESV, which is the version of the Bible that we preach from here at Sojourn, translates it a little bit differently. Exodus 2.22 in the ESV says, She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So as we come to our text today in Hebrews chapter 11, what we see is a picture of a stranger in a strange land. A sojourner who, along with his family, finds himself in a place that is not his home. But at that very same time, as he finds himself in this place, he's longing for a lasting city. He's longing for a place of permanence. And like the rest of Hebrews 11, it's a story of faith. This man is Abraham. And from his life, you and I can learn what it means to be a sojourner here and now. We can learn what it means to be a sojourner here and now. Because the reality is, if you know Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus, if you've been saved by Jesus' sacrifice for your sin and his glorious resurrection from the grave, then that's exactly who you are. You're a stranger in a strange land. You're a sojourner whose citizenship is in heaven. But you find yourself living here and now, in 2017 in Northern Virginia. So how now shall we live? Well, my hope today is that we will leave being challenged to live a life of faith like Abraham, that we will leave here being challenged to be faithful sojourners. And that's not just because you call sojourn your church, but because you understand that this is fundamentally who you are in Christ. And for those of you that don't yet know Christ, that you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, First off, I'm just glad you're here this morning. I don't know why God brought you to be here this morning, if it was through the invitation of a friend. Maybe God's doing something in your heart and your life right now, and you're just interested in learning more about Christianity or the church or what all this stuff is all about, but I'm glad you're here. My hope for you this morning is that as we unpack this text, is that you'll be able to see what knowing Jesus and living for Jesus actually looks like. Because so much of what you see on, the media, on media or in media and around our country, kind of American Christianity, isn't real Christianity or true Christianity or biblical Christianity. And so my hope is we look at God's word this morning that he'll help you to see what that actually looks like. And my guess would be there's some of you here this morning that think you know Christ but don't actually know him. That you would claim to be a Christian, but your life indicates something different. And so my hope for you this morning is that you will see that a true life of faith must be, has to be, is different than the trajectory of the world and its ways. Because life with Jesus isn't easy, but it is life. And it's life now and forever. So let's jump into the text this morning, and may God bless the preaching of his word. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to be reading from verses, verse 8 through verse 16. It's a little bit longer chunk of scripture. <clears throat> this is what God's word says to us this morning. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, 
not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs uh, with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, man and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of of the land of which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The author of Hebrews is continuing on with giving this history of God's people, and he's talking about their faith. And he's talking about their faith in God's faithfulness and who he is and what he's done, that he's faithful to his plans and his purposes and his people. And a theme that we've seen all throughout the book of Hebrews, that the author is trying to communicate to this original audience, that he's trying to communicate to you and me, is that Jesus is better. That he's better than anything that this world promises to you or offers to you. And our text today continues to reiterate this to us, for us. This text is a picture of what life looks like when we encounter the living God, or or better, when the living God encounters us. And we see this right away in verse 8. Look at verse 8 again. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. See, something interesting about this is this this story he's pulling from happens in Genesis chapter 12. So to give a little background on who Abraham is, Abraham lives in a culture, in a city that does not worship the one true God. They worship false gods. And it's it's understood by most scholars that the main God that they worshiped was a, a God they believed was the moon God. And that was Abraham's culture. That was the life that he was focused in on. He didn't know anything about the one true God. And so what's important to note here is that Abraham wasn't seeking God. He wasn't looking for him. He wasn't on a quest or a spiritual journey to find him. He was content with where he was. He didn't know anything else. But God came looking for him. God came looking for him. And when God called Abraham, he responded what did God call him to do? He called him to leave everything he had ever known. He called him to leave his place, this place that he had grown up in, that he had been in for such a long time. He called him to leave a people, to leave his community, his friends, his extended family. And he called him to go. But the crazy thing about this is he didn't know exactly where he was going. God didn't give him any coordinates. He didn't give him a a GPS destination. He didn't give him a map or anywhere at all. He just said, go and I will show you. He gave Abraham a simple and single message. Take your family and go to this place. But it wasn't just a call to go. It also had a promise with it. Let me read from Genesis chapter 12 where this comes from. Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you or by you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went. He went and he wasn't, he wasn't even sure where he was going. Then is this blind faith? A, a leap in the dark for Abraham? Oh, it's a picture of Hebrews 11.1 1 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is certitude. It's certainty in something. Not in ourselves, but in God. In who God is, his character, and what God has said he will do. It's taking God at his word and acting accordingly. And Abraham and his family are a prime example for doing just that. See, Abraham picked up everything that he had and he went out courageously into this unknown, into a strange land and really an uncertain future. That's all God had told him. I just read you from Hebrews chapter 12. And so there's a lot of uncertainty to that, but he responded to that uncertainty by trusting in God's promise, by trusting in the word of God. So Abraham went by faith. Not in himself, not in his abilities to be survivor man out in the wilderness. He went trusting in God, the God who made these promises. And also the God who didn't just send Abraham on his own, but the God who went with him to a foreign land. But there's something important for us to note here, and it's a theme that we have to come back to over and over again as we walk through Hebrews 11. It says, by faith Abraham obeyed. See, we need to see that faith in God leads to obedience. Faith in God leads to obedience. What this means is that we can't say that we have faith in God and not also obey him. They're inseparable from one another. Because if Abraham said he had faith, if he just said, well, God, I believe you. I believe you exist. I believe verse 6 of Hebrews 11. I believe you exist and you reward those who seek you. But if that's all he said and he didn't actually pick up his family and go and walk in obedience to what God had called him to do, then his faith would have proved empty. It would have proved false. Because it's easy to say with our mouth one thing, but to actually live our lives out in a particular way is very difficult and very challenging. It's really putting our money where our mouth is. Faith leads to obedience. So what does this mean for your life and for my life? It means that when I disobey God, when you disobey God, at its core, it isn't just about that you don't want to do something. It's that you don't have faith in God. You don't believe him. You don't believe that his ways are good for your life. And so you choose another path. You choose another direction. You start to look at the things he says as suggestions for your life and not as commands to be followed because he's king, because he's Lord, because he's God. See, faith is taking God at his word, and his word is not merely information transfer. It's transformational, and it leads to movement. It's movement-oriented. And so this is the same call that Jesus has on your life. When Jesus says to you, follow me, he actually means it. 
It isn't just to talk about him in theory. It isn't just to say that you believe in him or that you know him or know about him. It's actually to walk with him, to abide with him, to listen to him, to believe that God's will and ways are for your good and for your joy. To pick up anything and everything and go wherever he's calling you to go, to do whatever he's calling you to do. So let me ask you a question this morning. What might God be calling you to right now that you have yet to move on? What might God be calling you to right now in your life that you have yet to move on? And as you think about that question, I'd encourage you to do it in a way that incorporates the means of grace God has given to you. Because anything that God is calling you to will never contradict his word. So if there's something that's coming to mind for you right now and it doesn't match up with Scripture, then it's not from the Lord. Anything God's calling you to submits itself to the Scriptures because this is how God communicates to us. But that's also why you're surrounded by this group of people. You have community around you that can help you discern those things that God is calling you to. To help you walk forward in faith to whatever it happens to be, no matter how difficult or hard it might be. What is that thing right now for you? You know, there's something significant about leaving the familiar. It's difficult for anyone. And so if you feel that angst in your heart right now that God's calling you to do something hard, something difficult, you're in good company. Because this was Abraham leaving his homeland, the only place he'd ever really known to walk knowingly into the unfamiliar. He left everything and followed the Lord. See, what we see in these next few verses, though, that we have to understand with this is that faithful obedience doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy. It doesn't mean everything's going to be easy. Look at verses 9 and 10. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Again, the author says, by faith. By faith, he went to live to the, in this promised place that God had led him to. But the crazy thing about this is, throughout all of Abraham's life, he never actually possessed the land. He never actually owned the land. In fact, the only piece of land that Abraham had to his name was a burial ground. He had gone and purchased when his wife passed away. He, he owned a cemetery. That was it. It's all he ever had that he could say was his in this place that God had said to go to. He was a foreigner living in tents. He was a stranger in a strange land, and he was viewed as but as such by the people that lived there. It means he was, a, he was a sojourner. He was a temporary resident. He was an outsider. Everybody saw this man come into their place and said, well, you're not from here. You look different. You talk different. You are different. See, Abraham lived by faith, and that faith led him to obedience as he followed God to where he called him to go, leaving behind the comforts of familiarity, believing that what God said he would do, he would do. But his arrival in Canaan didn't bring the end of his journey. Quite the contrary. In some senses, it was really only the beginning. Because once he arrived and put his tent up for that first night, And every subsequent breakdown and move and put it up again. Breakdown and move and put it up again. He needed renewed faith. He needed a fresh commitment to obedience. 
God, I still need to trust you. Lord, increase my faith to trust that what you say you're going to do, you are going to do. Help me to continue to walk in obedience. Abraham didn't have a sense of permanence living in tents. In fact, I think what it actually did is it continued to serve as a reminder of the temporary nature of his present state and give him a hope for something in the future. His glorious blessing. We see this in verse 10. It says he lived in tents as a stranger in a strange land for he was looking ahead. For he was looking forward. See, they were, they were able to continually do this, continue to live as a sojourner in this land because of their faith in God. And by faith, faith by nature looks forward. It looks ahead. It doesn't get wrapped up just in the present circumstances of life. It's challenging or difficult as those might be. To look forward has the sense of absolute confidence that it will come to be. I recently watched a movie with Amy, a movie called Loving. And it's the story of Richard and Mildred Loving, who lived in Virginia, down in Caroline County, Virginia. Richard was white, Mildred was black, and 50 plus years ago, interracial marriage was illegal in Virginia, among a variety of other states. It's a fascinating story. They traveled up to Washington, D.C., because in Washington, D.C., it was legal for them to be married to one another. So they went there, and they got married, and they traveled back to Virginia to live with one another, not talking much about their marriage, but someone found out, and so the police came into their home in the middle of the night and arrested them for being married to each other because one person was black and the other was white. And so they appealed their case, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. The case is called Loving versus Virginia, And in 1967, the Supreme Court ruled in their favor and set the trajectory for interracial marriage to be legal nationwide. And it's crazy to me that that was just 50 years ago in our state, 50 years ago. But one of the opening scenes of this movie, Richard takes Mildred to a piece of land. And it's an empty field, about an acre in size, and he shows it to her. And he starts walking around. He says, I'm going to put this room here. And I'm going to build the kitchen right here. And she's confused. What are you doing? And he looks at her and he tells her, he says, I bought this. And he says to her, I'm going to build you a house. Our house. I can imagine when Abraham and Sarah, who at this point in time have no kids, put their tent up for the first time in the place that God had called them to go, that he visualized a place of permanence for him and this family that God had promised to him. But what was he looking forward to? A a house with a nice two-car garage? No, he was looking for something not small, not man-made, not temporary. He was looking for a city, and not just any city. He was looking for a city, a lasting city, a deep, indestructible, eternal city whose foundations will never go away, a city whose designer and builder is God himself. Now, the important thing about this that I don't want us to, to think in the midst of this is that this is some philosophical statement about the value of matter or having things. That, that in some way that this is the author trying to say it's not good for you to have a home or it's not good for you to have possessions. That place is inherently bad. It doesn't mean that you can't have any of those things. It doesn't mean that we as a church couldn't have a permanent place to gather and do ministry in and from. But what it does do in the midst of all of that is challenge us even now, 
to view all of those things as temporary and pointing to that which is greater and lasting. That if we have a home, wherever we lay our head at night, whatever possessions we have, that all of those things are not stuff just for us to hold on to, but to reflect God's glory that we long for that same city that Abraham longed for. Now the author has more to say about this, but he takes a brief but related digression to talk about Abraham and Sarah having kids in verses 11 and 12. It says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, how would you like that to be your description? Were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. The fact that Abraham had a family beyond his wife, that he had children, is both a miracle and an act of faith. Because back in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham a place and a people. He said he would be a great nation. But when they picked up and moved, they didn't have a family. They had no kids. And when they got there, they still had no kids. And they struggled with infertility for years. Years. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but it was 20 or 40 years of once they got there of not having children. That's a long time. And in Genesis chapter 15, we see Abraham wrestling with this. He knows what God has said. He's trusting in God to believe this, but he's just looking at the facts. And he's having a hard time going, God, I don't know. I'm getting older. My wife is getting older. I just don't, I don't see this happening for us. And so he assumed at that point that the only likely outcome is that one of his servants would be his heir. But God said to him in Genesis 15 verse 4, This man, talking about his heir, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And a few verses later he says, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. He takes him outside and he, he calls him to look up and be in awe of who God is. To look at the expanse of what he can see with his naked eye and say, just try and count those stars. And that's how many children I'm going to bless you with. That's what your family is going to grow to be. And you know what happened? He believed God. In that moment, he believed him. And because of that, because he had faith in God, he was declared as righteous before God. Because in that moment... There's nothing he could do to make that happen. He had to trust that God was going to bring that about. See, the journey of faith and future grace and the promises of God is not always easy. In fact, I would say most of the time for our lives, it isn't easy. It isn't easy. If it was easy, we wouldn't call it faith. Right, if I knew what's going to happen tomorrow and every second beyond that, then I don't have to trust in anyone but myself. But faith for Abraham and faith for you and for me in the midst of life requires us to trust in someone greater than ourselves. And Abraham and Sarah didn't always get it right. They wrestled with this. In fact, after this moment that he has with God saying, God, I believe that you're going to do this, he still, with his wife, tries to take things into his own hands and bring it about by himself. But God remained faithful even in these moments when their faith was weak. And man, I hope that's encouraging to you this morning. That you may have weak faith, you may struggle to have ongoing faith in what God is calling you to, what he said about your life. But God remains faithful, even when we struggle. 
And so God enabled them to conceive as he said that they would, even in their old age, because they considered him to be faithful who made these promises. To consider means to believe, not blindly, but with a confidence in the one who has made the promise. See, this is not faith without reason, nor are we called to have reason and no faith. Faith and reason should work together. They do work together, and that's possible because of who God is. But too often our reason, or what we call reason in culture, is actually unreasonable because we exclude God from it. Something or someone we can't fully comprehend from the equation, we exclude God. It's like trying to solve for X, but removing the primary information necessary to solve for it. But when we factor God into the equation, nothing is unreasonable. Nothing is impossible. And do you believe that today? Will you believe it tomorrow? But even in all of this, their sojourn status didn't change. And that's good for us to remember as well. Look at verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And what a sobering statement verse 13 is. They died in faith, not having received the things promised. So was God unfaithful? Was God unfaithful to them? No, he was faithful through and through as we look at the larger view of his redemptive plan. Because do you remember what he said to Abraham in in Genesis 12 when he told him to go? He said, I'm going to give you this place And later on in his family, through his family line, they would have that place, though they would lose it through disobedience. And he said he would bless them with all of these children. And his family grew as he had his first child, and that child had a child, and they had many children. It went on and on and on. They had more children. But then he said this, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. God told Abraham one day redemption and restoration would come through your family. And it has. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise of God made to Abraham and you and anyone else. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says that Jesus is the yes and amen to all of God's promises. All of his promises find their yes in Jesus. So at the end of the day, it was never about the land. It was never about having a big family. It was about Christ's coming. Christ who is God's perfect place. Christ who is the true embodiment of God's people. And you know what he's doing now? He's bringing people into that family people from every tribe, every language, and every nation to experience his peace and be given his perfect righteousness to be in relationship with the living God. When God said, Abraham, look up and see the stars of the sky, and if you can count every single one of them, that's how many kids you're going to have. That's you if you know Jesus. That's the nations who know Jesus through one man, and him as good as dead, that he'd bring redemption to humanity. And when Christ came, so we have to see that that's what he's talking about here. And, and, and Abraham and his family, they didn't understand that fully. 
They didn't have a full grasp of what was going to happen. We have the, the joy, the privilege to look back and see this whole story unfold before our eyes. But they were desperate for God. And they were desperate for redemption that he came to bring. And so they believed God and they greeted these promises and blessings from afar. And it's like when my kids sometimes hear me before they see me. Maybe they see the car pull up in the driveway and they start screaming, Daddy! And then they come running in the direction of where I am. They greeted me from a distance with zeal and anticipation of actually seeing me. They know I'm coming. They know it's happening. And the same thing's true for Abraham and company. Because of that rock-solid faith of assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, they oriented their whole lives around this pursuit and they walked by faith, not perfectly, but they walked by faith and they moved forward towards it. And in so doing, they acknowledged to themselves and to the world that they are indeed strangers and exiles. They're sojourners. They're just passing through, looking and longing for a place of permanence. And the author said, people who live like this, people who talk like this, make it clear that they're longing for a homeland. The author says it's not, it's not their old place that they came from, because if that was the case, they could have just gone back there. No, they desired a better country, a heavenly country, where their faithful God is in perfect communion and perfect peace with them forever, in a perfect city full of the redeemed, in perfect relationship with God and with one another. And the city of God will be perfect because God will be in it, and because Christ has crushed all that would be contrary to that on the cross. He will walk in it. He will talk in it. He will manifest himself in every part of it in all that is good and beautiful and holy and peaceful and true and happy will be there because God will be there. And it will never deteriorate or pass away. And it's because of that, because they long for that, because they believe in that, that God says that he's not ashamed to be called their God. And he's preparing that very place for them and for you too. For me, if we have faith in him, if we believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those promises. See, this is a picture of a life of faith in the midst of a broken down world. It's a picture of life and faith of a sojourner. And so what does that mean for us? What does it mean to be a sojourner now? I mean, there's so much for us to get caught up in in life. So much for us to be distracted by in life. It could be our families, our relationships, our work, our careers, our homes, our stuff. There's so many things to vie for our attention, for us to get wrapped up in. And in the midst of the difficulties of life, whatever those happen to be, it's easy to gravitate towards the things that will numb the pain or at least distract us for a little while. When I was in college, going through a particularly hard season, feeling lonely and uncertain about a lot of things. God helped me. He helped me through reading this text in Hebrews 11 and others like it. He helped me to see that this is not my home. In fact, I wrote on a three-by-five card that I still have that I just found in the Bible I used in college the other day. And I wrote in there, I'm a foreigner. This is not my home. And at the bottom of that, along with these verses, I wrote, the world is not my friend. And I kind of teared up this week seeing that because for me, that's an artifact of faith. 
that I can look back and see and be reminded of, my, of the faithfulness of my God towards me, that even as a 20-year-old college student, God was helping me to see something. He was helping to impact my life, or he was impacting my life and helping me see something true about my life and who he is. And it impacted me now, and even to see then that he's allowed me to be a part of pastoring a church called Sojourn Church. That that some 16 years ago, that God was helping me even then to realize this is not my home. And this church is called Sojourn because this is not our home. We are journeying to a greater city on a journey to and with Jesus. And we're inviting people to join us on that journey. See, I need to be reminded of that then. And you know what? I need to be reminded of it now. Because I still struggle with sin. And I still struggle with unbelief. And I still struggle with the brokenness of our world. And it's discouraging at times. And so I need to be reminded of it, just like Abraham needed to have that fresh commitment towards obedience, a a renewal of his faith, because I'm a sojourner also. I'm not living merely for the here and now, but for an eternity in the presence of my God. I need to be refreshed in that, and my guess is you do too. I'm on a journey to and with Jesus to the city whose lasting foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And if you know Christ, so are you. One of my all-time favorite stories is the Pilgrim's Progress. It's a fantastic allegorical tale of the Christian life written a couple hundred years ago. And towards the beginning of the story, Christian, who's the main character, is carrying a burden around. It's a picture of his sin. We sang about having a burden a, a little while ago. That you're carrying this heavy load on your back, weighed down by your sin. And he meets a man named Evangelist, and the Evangelist tells him to go to the narrow gate and pass through, and there your burden will be released from you. And so he makes his way to the narrow gate that he's been pointed to, but many people along the way and circumstances along the way are persuading him, telling him not to go. But he continues to plod forward, and he arrives at this gate, and he enters this gate, his, his burden soon to be released And the man at the entrance says to him, look in front of you. Do you see the narrow road? That is the way you must go. But Christian said to him, are there any turns or twists through which a stranger might lose his way? Yes, the man said. There are many paths adjacent to this one, and they are crooked and wide. But you can distinguish the right one from the wrong one because only the right one is straight and narrow. That's the reality for you if you are in Christ. When you place your faith in Jesus, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, when you've thrown yourself wholly on the grace of God given to you in and through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for your sin, you haven't arrived. You don't just enter the gate and stop there. You just begin the journey. And the journey is to a better land, a better place beyond the river, the celestial city, to be with God. See, recognizing this fundamentally changes your identity. And when your identity is changed, it changes your desires, it changes your ambitions, it changes the focus of your life because you recognize you're no longer living for the here and now. See, this presses on what the world desires for you. It presses on even what some of American Christianity tells you or desires from you. Listen, when you understand that this place is not your home, you cannot conflate the American dream and the kingdom of God. 
Those two things do not go together. Why? Because there's dissonance when you're a sojourner. There's dissonance when you're a stranger in a strange land. It creates conflict within you because you have a different worldview now. God has given you new loves, new goals, new ambitions, different from the world. As one author says, that doesn't mean we're anti-cultural. It means we're counter-cultural. We seek to bring the kingdom of God here and now. And so as citizens of the kingdom of God, as sojourners living here, but longing for that new city, longing for the fullness of the kingdom of God to come to be, you and I are called to live with kingdom-mindedness. That our focus is on God and seeing those things come to be here. We live with kingdom-mindedness where we find ourselves until Jesus returns or calls us home. One way to think about that practically Right now, you and I find ourselves in a very politically charged environment. Not just because we live in Washington, D.C., but just the state of where our country and the state of where the globe is right now. But if we are living as sojourners with a kingdom-mindedness right now, right here, in some respects living with strangers and aliens in a place, living in tents, what that means for you and me is the way we live our life, what we care about, should continually, continually confound the political left and the political right. That there should be things that you do as a citizen of the kingdom of God that people on the left applaud. Say, yes, finally they get it. At the very same time, there should be things that people on the political right applaud. But it's not because they fit nicely into their political camps. It's because Jesus called us to do those things. We don't do those things out of any other ethic than the kingdom of God. The ethic of the kingdom of God is we follow an eternal king. So as sojourners then, what that means is is that we stand up for the rights of the unborn and we strive for racial reconciliation and seeing racism crushed. It means that we're called to care for the marginalized. We're called to care for the refugee, the widow, and the orphan and for our families and our communities. It means that we're called to care for our neighbor and value all people as image bearers of God regardless of their beliefs, regardless of their sexual orientation, regardless of what they think about the world, if they even believe in God at all, we're called to value them as human beings because they're made in his image. Yet at the very same time, we're called to stand up for the sanctity of marriage. Why? Because those aren't social issues. Those are gospel issues. Those are kingdom issues. When we embrace our identity as sojourners, that means also that there is no place for xenophobia or nationalism among God's people. Because that was you. you. You were a stranger. You were a refugee. You were displaced. Like Abraham, you were lost and had no hope. You were not a people. But then God came for you. He came for you and he called you and he saved you. And now you are a people. You had no lasting city, but now you do. And so we're called now to represent and be that the same way to those around us. When we acknowledge that we are sojourners, We live life with open hands and open lives, not holding on to or holding back the things of this world because we actually believe and have faith that there is something better that lies ahead for us. So anything and everything pales in comparison. It's all rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. We live our life oriented that way. But man, let's be honest. At times, this kind of living will be difficult and trying Following God by faith in this way isn't easy just because God is calling you to it. 
sacrificial living is called sacrificial because it actually costs you something. And the world is going to seek to pull you away from that. People with even in the church, the body of Christ, are going to persuade you not to live that way. But that's where Abraham struggled as well. He struggled to grasp onto that and, and wavered in his faith at times. So the reality is you and I are going to struggle as well. That's why we need renewed faith. That's why we need fresh commitment to obedience. It's why we need to continue to pray, Lord, increase my faith, increase our faith. It's why we need each other. We need to remind each other of that narrow and straight road to stay on, that our identity is that we are sojourners, strangers in a strange land, and so we should live differently, challenging one another, encouraging one another to continue to faithfully follow our king and his kingdom, who is not of this world. So let me ask you, as you think about your life right now and throughout this week, what are you seeking? What is the aim and goal of your life? Are you, are you settling in here? Getting comfortable? Just thinking about you? And what is God calling you to? What are you seeking? What's the aim and goal of your life? What is God calling you to? Because a faith that obeys is a faith that costs. But again, that cost pales in comparison with the eternal weight of glory that awaits us as we continue to journey with Jesus. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, To live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the heart of a man who understands, who gets what it means to be a sojourner. While here, I live for Christ. I want my neighbors to know Jesus. I want the nations to know Jesus. And so I'm going to do everything and use everything God's given me to invite people on that journey with me. But oh, how I long to be with him. Oh, how I long to see him face, for, face to face. Man, may that be us. May that be you. Faithful sojourners to the very end. As we come forward to take communion this morning, it's a meal for sojourners. And here's why. It looks back to what Christ has done. As we eat the bread, we're reminded that Christ's body was broken for us. And as we drink the cup, we're reminded that Christ's blood was shed for us. It also looks back to a time of rescue where Jesus saved you from your sin. It's a reminder that he is still with you. But it's also a meal that looks forward. It's a declaration that our hope is still in Jesus. And it's a look forward to when we will dine with him in the new city, celebrating the grace he has given to us for all eternity. And so we eat this meal together every week because we're sojourning together to the new city. It's an encouragement to your soul. It's a refreshment to your soul to stay on that narrow path, to keep moving forward, making much of Jesus along the way, and in hopes that others will join you. And so this morning, come forward in hopeful expectation. Confess to the Lord where you're finding and putting your aim on something besides this future hope, this future glory, and come to the table in celebration for what Christ has done with a gaze ahead for when we will see him face to face. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we would just ask you not to come forward to take communion because this is a, a meal for us that we have said this is not our home anymore that our hope is in Christ. And so if your hope isn't yet in Christ, I want to implore you and invite you to put your hope in Jesus. So he's saying earlier, he, he invites you, come to me. 
Come to me. Lay down your burdens at the feet of Jesus. If you want to start a relationship with Christ, you can sit in your seat right now as those that are coming to take communion move around and you can tell him that. Ask him to save you from your sin. And then let somebody around you know that you're ready to start a relationship with Christ so that we can journey with you on this road. And you can learn more of what it looks like to know and follow Christ. And those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front of the tables in the back. Tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And my prayer is this. Oh Lord, haste the day when our faith will be sight. Haste the day when our faith, my faith will be sight, when we'll get to see you face to face, when we'll get to worship you and see you and be so close to you physically, present with you and you with us. But until that day, Lord, help us to be faithful sojourners. Help us to be faithful sojourners, that we would live lives with open hands and open lives, gener- generously giving and sacrificing and living in a way that says that our hope is not here but is with you in all eternity. Help us to walk the straight and narrow road. Help us to be an anomaly. God, that people even within the church and the world around us would scratch their heads and not have a box to fit us into. The caricature of Christianity that's often portrayed on media, that we would dispel that, not with our mouths, but with the way we live our lives. Lord, would you call more and more people to yourself? And Lord, we continue to pray, increase our faith. Increase our faith that we might walk with you and live for you, for your glory and for the good of others. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.